Welcome to Coach House Talks. For those of you who don't know, we're continuing our series on Mind the Gap, and our theme at the moment is the knowledge of God. So my rather grandiose title this morning is uh, The Knowledge of God, A Fear and Purpose Lost in the Modern Age. Okay. Let us begin. Bearing in mind that I started with a scripture from Timothy, which said, we have not been given a spirit of fear and timidity. Okay, so we need to balance the points that we're going to be looking at. A while ago, I mentioned to you as a church that a common phrase that uh, is used by Jesus throughout Scripture, it's used over and over again when he presents himself to his disciples, when there's wonderful things about to happen. He talks about it in Revelation when he appears to the churches. And the, ver- the first thing he talks about, the first thing he says when he appears before any of the churches in Revelation is, do not be afraid. Do not fear. So whether it was Jesus walking on the water towards the disciples, whether it was Jesus appearing after his resurrection, or simply just to refocus attention on himself, Jesus often says, do not fear. They're almost the first words out of his mouth when something supernatural is occurring. Do not be afraid. Now, this does... And this is what we kind of want to look at this morning. This does appear somewhat at odds with the instructions that we have to fear God. Okay, so it is littered throughout Scripture, fear God. And yet, most times Jesus starts any preamble with, do not fear, do not be afraid. So it seems at odds, doesn't it? And we often and wrongly only associate the 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 instruction to fear God with the Old Testament. And if we do, I'm afraid, you've got that wrong. As we will see, this instruction is still valid today. It's still valid. It was valid throughout the New Testament. So how do we resolve this seemingly conflicting idea and how how do we apply it to our our lives today? What does it mean for us as church today? How do we kind of balance these two opposing views that we fear God and yet God says do not fear him? So like many things, this balancing act between seemingly opposing statements reflects often our understanding and cultural setting. It had a cultural significance in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It has a significance to us today. So we should probably always try and add context to any instruction or anything that we're reading or we're seeing. So I'm going to ask a fundamental question of you. It's an all-encompassing question, and it's one that you can shout out the answer to. But it helps us kind of root ourselves and set ourselves and set our hearts and set our minds. Is God the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow? That's good. That's fairly unwavering. Any doubt in the room? Good. Good, because the Bible states it plainly, doesn't it? Hebrews 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, forever. 
There's a stability. There's an assurance in this description that helps us to navigate whatever we face. Not only for the people it was said to at the time, but for us who follow Jesus now. Okay? The statement has not changed. God has not changed. Jesus' statements of fact and his love for you have not changed. In fact, in the context of Hebrews 13, the writer goes on to make the point that it's precisely because God or Jesus does not change that we also, and they at the time, can have stability in their lives, in our lives, in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. So whatever trouble, whatever thing, whatever anything is coming against you or amassing against you, you can have the confidence to state categorically that Jesus is the same today in my circumstances as he was in any circumstances previously and in any circumstances to come. He is rock. Rock solid. Right? Our lives are far from rock solid, would you agree? But Jesus is rock solid. Now, whilst the context of Hebrews, and we probably just do, do need to, sorry, I'm going to take some scriptures from Hebrews today. Whilst the context of Hebrews is written to Jews who are thinking about, they've, they've converted to Jesus, they've, they've become believers, okay, but they've dragged with them their old Judaic kind of understanding of the law and the covenant and everything else. So they, they, they're wanting to return possibly back to these old covenant and Judaism. All right? They're under attack and they're thinking of giving it up. They're thinking of going back to what they came from. And the writer to Hebrews is, is using an argument to present that Jesus is the better way. Forget all of the old covenant. Forget all of the rules. Forget all of these old things. Here is Jesus, and he is a better way. Now, the truth of Jesus being the way, regardless of cultural persuasions, still resonates with us today. We may not be tempted to become Jews or go back into Judaism, because hands up if any of you have ever been practicing Jews or into Judaism. It's a risky one, that, because there may be some, you know, okay. So we're not kind of tempted to go back into sacrifice and all of those different things under the law. We're not being tempted to go back into those things. But I'll tell you something, you will be and are being tempted to go back to the place that Jesus rescued you from. Okay? It's the same thing. You see how the context is the same. I've rescued you and I've given you a better way. But often when we go through times and trouble, we want to revert back to what we were. Is this worth it? Let's just go back. Is it worth this pain? Is it worth this criticism? Is it worth people laughing at us? Is it worth, the, is it, worth it? Let's go back to where we were. Let's go back to where Jesus rescued us from. So the new covenant has rescued those that have believed in Jesus from the old covenant. Now, this unchanging aspect of God 
is called immutability. Okay? It's not so often we talk about God being omnipresent, we talk about God being all of the omnis, but then there's this one immutability that God does not change. Now it's really important to note that this applies to every aspect of God. Every aspect of God. So when we say that God does not change, it means his character never changes, never has, and never will. His will has never changed. Okay, this is going to be a difficult one to say. His will has never changed, and it never will. And his covenant promises have never changed, and they never will. As believers, as Christians, we call ourselves Christians now, but at the time in the Old Testament we read about, they were believers. It was before they became known as Christians, Christ followers. They were followers of the way. They were believers. As believers, Christians today, we exist under the new covenant. Okay? Which Jesus brought into being by his sacrificial death. He paid for us. He paid for our sin. He actually didn't just give us forgiveness for the sins that we committed. He dealt with sin. We looked at this on Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Jesus dealt with sin. For the first time in history, sin has been dealt with. And that's why this new covenant is the better covering alluded to and promised throughout the other covenant promises of Scripture. Remember Adam and Eve, we've talked about this. Remember Adam and Eve coming out of the garden and God said, before you go, before you go, you need something because those fig leaves aren't cutting it. Yeah? I'm just figuratively, obviously God didn't probably say it like that. But what God did for them was he said, look, you, you can't go out there and be exposed to the world and what's outside without something from me. And God provided them a covering. And that rolls on throughout Scripture, and it becomes a picture of the covering that God is always preparing and wants to give to us. Ultimately, the sacrifice of Jesus, which covers our sins with the sacrifice of Jesus' blood. So this covering, this better covering, that's what's been talked about all the time through Scripture. That's what Scripture is looking forward to. Everything that God does in the Old Testament, his choosing of people, his choosing of individuals, his compassion, his protection, the covenant promises, all the blessings, they all point forward to the better covering to come. They all point forward to Jesus, the final and eternal covenant promise of saviour but also as judge now it's all too easy to forget that bit isn't it and we can't forget that second part yes Jesus is our saviour but he's also the judge of this world and we can't wriggle away from that why can't we wriggle away from it because Jesus is the same Yesterday, today, and forever. And it's easy to get carried away with the grace and forgiveness aspects 
of our blessing that we enjoy, isn't it? It's easy to get carried away with that and actually be persuaded that it's all about that and it's nothing to do with our discipline, what we do, and our actions. We should never forget that Jesus is the righteous judge of every heart. Every heart of man will be judged by the Lord and King of Kings, and his name is Jesus. When Jesus returns, it will be to claim to himself his own and bring about the full salvation. Okay, how many of you in here have reached salvation right now? Oh, some hesitancy, that's good. Because there's your balance. Are we saved? Yes. Can we say that with assurance? Are we saved? Have we entered into our salvation yet? See, that's the trickier one, isn't it? Because the answer is yes, you have, but you haven't walked into it yet. You're not in that promised state. You're not in that eternal state where there is no sin, where there is no temptation to sin, where all of that is gone, where there's no crying, there's no tears, there's no death, there's no decay, there's no sickness. All of those wonderful promises, I don't think we're standing in those promises yet, are we? Right, so therefore, we haven't entered into that full state of salvation. But when Jesus comes back and judges hearts, guess what happens at that point? We enter into the promise of our full salvation. That's why it's talked about in scriptures that the Holy Spirit is just the guarantee, the first fruits of that guarantee that was to come. See, it's a guarantee in our hearts. So yes, we are saved when we proclaim Jesus as Savior, but we haven't walked into that fullness of salvation yet. But that's to come. Jesus, as judge, reminds us that it's correct to rightfully fear God. As he will, because Scripture tells us, he will act against unrighteousness. Now, we have little aspects of that today in our lives. We know when we do things wrong that we have this, the Spirit convicts us of our wrongdoing, yes? So we have a little bit of that going on now because God's always wanting us to right, walk in a righteous way. He wants our actions to show that we have an expressive relationship with the Lord. Now, the book of Hebrews expresses this tension really well. The tension between the, the what the what what they might return to, and the promise of what's to come. The book of Hebrews expresses this tension well, especially in chapter 12, where we encounter the discipline of a loving God in order that we might share in his holiness. So let's just dwell on a couple of passages for a second. So Hebrews 12, halfway through verse 10, and then the full, of, full uh, verse 11 says this, God's discipline is always good for us. God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in his holiness. Okay, so there's something to come. So it's worth going through discipline because there's something better to come. No discipline's enjoyable whilst it's happening. It's painful. But afterwards, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. So we fear 
what we don't fear. We fear God, but we don't fear the consequences of our failure to obey him because his grace is sufficient to cover that aspect. But we don't therefore just lose the entire fear that we have of God. Let me try and put this in a, in a, in a context that we might be able to understand. I remember fighting with my brother. So I've got two brothers. The youngest brother, butter, melt in mouth, you know, it's one of those. Nothing could go wrong, little brother. Middle brother, our Mike, well, what can I tell you about our Mike? Other than when I got up in the morning and looked at him, his face, I just wanted to punch it. <laughs> and I'm just being honest. I'm just being honest. And, and you know what? I can't explain why. And all he will tell you is that he would see my face and would want to punch that also. Yeah, probably. Probably it's more relatable that way around. But it was, it was actually something we couldn't really control. It was an aspect of our character, and I have no idea, and we've, we're good friends now, so it's not an issue. It suddenly it just turned off as, soon, as quickly as it turned on. But for a long time in our lives, it was like Phil could get away with anything because we both loved Phil. But between the two of us, there was just total and utter... And hatred is probably not too strong a word to put on it. It was in indescribable passion to hurt him. No idea where it came from. But I remember fighting with him, battling with him. Every time my mum and dad went out of the house, it was like, ding, ding, round one. <laughs> <laughs> we laugh about it now, but I tell you, how we did not end up in hospital, I have no idea. I remember looking through the front window of our house, and we got a big plate glass window in front of my mum and dad's house. And my mum and dad said, we're going to, make, going to grandma's for a bit. You'll be good, won't you? <laughs> and the car has to come round the back from the garage, and then it's out the side of our house, turns out onto the main road, and then drives past the front window. Okay, so you know they've gone. So I'm looking out the window, leaning on the mantel, on, on the uh, Mantelpiece? Not the mantelpiece. Windowsill. <laughs> Leaning on the windowsill, looking out the window, waiting for mum and dad's car to go so I could turn around and smack Mike and start a fight. Because that's, that's just where our hearts were. right? Unfortunately, on this instance, as I turned around to go and get him, he was already halfway across the room, <laughs> charged me and put me through the window. That, that's what it was like. I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm not trying to glorify this. I'm trying to explain just what was going on in our kind of heads. So I'm through the window, glass everywhere, not injured. Okay, how? I do not know. Of course, the glass being everywhere just brings us both in a moment of blind panic into a moment of realization. Uh-oh. <laughs> so we both stopped fighting each other and started making excuses as to how this might have happened that wasn't us fighting. So we came again on this great idea of if we lob a brick through the window and just let it land in the front, in the middle of the living room, <laughs> that we could argue that somebody saw us at the window and just lobbed a brick through it. You can see the floor in this, can't you? Yeah, we couldn't see the floor in this at the time. We thought this was a great plan. This is great. This will get us out of it. 
Let's just put the brick through. Uh, both of us now, when they come home, oh, we were just at the window. Somebody who didn't like us, took exception to us, lobbed the brick through. We just about escaped the brick, Dad. <laughs> I have to say, my revenge for Mike putting me through the window was for me to lie him down on the wheeled settee with his head overhanging the end and to ram it on its wheels into my mum's glass cabinet. Like I said, how we did not end up in hospital, I have no idea. But one thing that I'm very, very conscious of is that whatever our unbridled state of hatred towards each other was, there was something else that we were equally conscious of. It was always put into perspective, whatever we'd done, whether I was through the front window or Mike's head was through the glass cabinet, it was always put into perspective by this knowledge. Dad was coming home. Do, do, do you get what this example is trying to point to? Okay. It was always pulled into perspective by this knowledge that Dad was coming home. And he was coming home into this carnage that we'd unleashed that we were responsible for. We knew, even though we couldn't explain this hatred towards one another, we couldn't really explain our actions, we did know that our behavior deserved punishment. And we were in fear of it coming, let me tell you. When I was put through that window, it wasn't a case of, right, I need revenge. It was a case of, uh-oh, we are in big trouble. So we did everything we could to try and hide that trouble and blame somebody else and get out of it. And we knew that we were deserving of punishment and that punishment was on its way. Because as soon as mum and dad came home, well, I won't describe the punishment. But it was severe. But I also knew something else. I also knew with absolute certainty that we were loved doesn't make any sense, does it? But I knew with absolute certainty, even though I was in dreadful fear of the consequences of what I'd just done, that I was loved by the person who was about to give out that punishment. We were treated with far more mercy than we deserved. I don't remember ever, ever having to pay for the windows. I don't remember ever having to pay for the glass cabinets. I don't ever remember having to pay for any of the damage that we inflicted on my parents' house. I remember being punished for the act, but I also remember being loved. Is that, is this, does this resonate with people? Maybe not the pushing through windows, but... We were given mercy and, and we were treated with far more mercy simply for one fact and one fact alone. We were his sons. We were his. We were his sons. And so we were given mercy that we didn't really, or our actions didn't really deserve. Now, that simple illustration, maybe, maybe a little bit, well, it's, you'd think that was embellished. It was not embellished. <laughs> I'm uh, probably bringing it down a little. 
A simple illustration which works in my situation, but I'm aware may not work for all of us because our circumstances are different, reminds us of what a father's love should look like. We recognize it because it's the nature of God. When we read scripture, we see that same descriptive, don't we? We see punishment for those who do wrong, but we also see this massive outpouring of mercy and grace and forgiveness that we are recipients of. We recognize it because it's the nature of God which is revealed throughout scripture to us. He has the authority to administer punishment and blessing as he determines. Because he's got the right to. He has the right to do these things. So let's just bring ourselves up to date and address the situation we find ourselves in today as we navigate the gap that we're looking at. You see, increasingly, I think we find in today's society a lack of fear of anything. Not only of God, but in any authority. Anything. We shouldn't be surprised at this because that also is revealed to us in this book. This is man's character. Right from the beginning. I want to do my own thing. I know best. It probably feels a little bit more out of control nowadays because we seem to be surrounded by a mantra which is be what you want, do what you like, be happy, be free, be liberated, whatever any of those things mean. The problem comes because we simply need to ask, what have we been made free from? What have we been liberated from and why? Why is this general consensus that we need to be free from everything and we need to rise out of our bondages and we need to rise up and be what we want to be? But what from and why? What is it that this modern age wants you to break free from and why is it so appealing to the masses? Well, it's because you're all having your ego tickled. And you know what? You've had your egos tickled since day one. Do you want to be in control? You're good enough. Do you want to be the master of your own destiny? Because you shouldn't let anybody else tell you what to do. You should be able to just do it yourself and whatever the consequences that might be, hey, you'll be all right. You rise above it. You're fine. It's all about you. Don't let anybody else tell you what's wrong in your life. Don't let anybody else tell you what you are. You just decide for yourself and we'll just go with it. It's fine. Does that seem like the world today? Yeah. And we see it over over again. Why do we like it? Because it plays to our own egos. And we can't control our egos. You know, some people have got egos and you go, oh, blimey, their ego's out of control. But let me tell you, all of us have got egos. All of us have got human nature playing out a story, playing out a narrative in our lives. It's our own sense of self-importance. Yes, it's true that we do need liberating from a few things that uh, we might find in our lives, but that's not the underlying premise of this modern age or of any age since the fall. The underlying premise has been you don't need God, you just need you. 
and don't let anybody else tell you what you need to do. You just do it. Be liberated. Be free from all the rules. Be free from all of the restrictions. You ever hear people say that church is just a bunch of rules that stops you having fun? Same thing. We know that church liberates. We know that Jesus liberates and makes us free because we know the reality of the consequences of that bondage. What the world offers as freedom and liberation is the very opposite of the freedom that Christ has earned for us. Let me tell you that. Think about this for a second. Culture of today says you can be what you like, behave how you like, simply because we've eroded all knowledge of the fear of God. There is no consequence for your actions, so go ahead and do it. We've disputed creation. Right? Church, Christians, disputed creation. We use the name of Jesus as a swear word. I think I said last time, you know, you watch TV and you hear Jesus this, God this. Have you ever heard Allah this, Muhammad this? No. Why? Because they're not real. Okay, Jesus is real and he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the righteous judge. And so everything that we sit around, everything that's coming into our minds is to try and eradicate that and push it down. We scoff at the notion of a God who loves us when all we, are, all we see around us is war and dispute. Let me tell you, even the church is trashing the boundaries of God's covenant relationship with us by saying that we want to change the rules, we want to change who God is to suit our culture. But it's man who's defining that culture in the first place. And we know that man has got a problem with his ego. And now we ask God to change in order to accept our behavior. Which we've already determined he cannot. Because he is the same. I'm just checking you're still awake. He is the same. You need to keep saying this to yourself. You know, this is a really important scripture. Just keep reminding yourself. He doesn't change his character. Does God work with what you and I give him? Yes, he does. Okay, so he works within the circumstances that man kind of throws out there in our rebellious nature. But does he change his character, his heart, or his will, and his promises to do so? No, he does not. Remember my dad and the consequences of my actions towards my brother. He did what he did in order to bring order into our chaos. That's what my dad did. And God does the same yesterday, today, and ultimately forever. This gives us hope and purpose, which very few today seem to have. Anyone here trust politicians? Hey, just a question. Why am I being ridiculed for that? It's like I've I've asked something really, really contentious. Do you trust politicians? Oh, right, okay. (laughs) I would would say some of them. You can't broad brush all this sometimes. Anyone trust government? 
Anyone trust what our schools are teaching our kids today? Oh. Trust that I don't see. I, you know that I don't trust pure maths. It's just made up. <laughs> see, the whole point here, right? We can laugh about these things, but the whole point here is that you can see just from that simple three or four questions, and we could ask a load more, but just in those simple factual statements that we're throwing out because we're told to trust our governments, we're told to trust our politicians, we're supposed to trust what's been taught our kids. Yeah? Those, these are fabrics of our society. The whole point here is none of you in this room trust that fabric anymore. You see what Satan's been at. You see the mess that we're getting ourselves in. Anyone trust church leaders? Well, do you know what? That's coming into the same category. That's what we have to be aware of. That's what we need to be seeing because I tell you what, there's that much high-profile stuff at the moment that we don't know the truth when we read something. There is an agenda at play and we mustn't forget this. So once you start deconstructing society and its rules, we remove the boundaries that determine the reason for our very existence. Our culture's done such a good job of removing any fear of any consequence that now anything has to be accepted because you've got the right to do whatever you want and be whatever you decide. But the Bible is very clear. Romans 2, verses 5 to 11. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will judge everyone according to what they have done. He will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, seeking after the glory and the honor and immortality that God offers. But he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness. There will be a trouble and calamity for everyone who keeps on doing what is evil. For the Jew first, and also for the Gentile. Okay, so it's a coverall here. None of us can wriggle out of this. But there will be glory and honor and peace from God for all who do good. For the Jew first, and also for the Gentile. You see how the covering is there for both? We can't say, well, that was for the Jew, and this is for us. Actually, we're all under the same covering if we choose to accept it. For God, this is what the verse concludes with, for God does not show favoritism. Remember Paul saying that there is no, no man, male, female, slave, free. Yeah? You can see why he's saying that, can't you? Because we all come under this new covenant. Hope and purpose comes from knowing what is ahead and also in front. It isn't a vague nothingness. We don't exist with nothing ahead of us. I was going to talk about a new teaching that's coming into the church, but I'm not going to bother. We'll, we'll discuss that another time. Having purpose gives direction. Having direction means there is a path to steer. Knowing the path offers us guidance and safety. That's what this book is all about. 
removing guidance and removing rules, guess what it removes? Safety. Removing safety means we're in danger. Having no direction brings despair and anxiety. Having despair and anxiety robs us of all hope and purpose. What's the, what's the biggest thing that's kind of hit in this country right now? What is the thing that we all talk about? What is the thing we talk about, we pray about, we're just very conscious of nowadays? Anxiety. It's massive. I'm not sure it was that massive that many years ago, but now it's massive. Anxiety. And it's keeping us in bondage. That's why we prayed for Christine before. We don't want that bondage to have a hold on people. We want to be free as Christ has made us free. Let's cast off the chains of bondage and despair which this modern age dresses up as freedom and rights. God offers us true freedom from the consequences of sin and unrighteousness. But the cost of the knowledge of God is that we understand what is required of us. So let's finish by considering the verses of Hebrews 13, beginning where we started. Because Jesus, the very image of God, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Which continues into Hebrews 13, verse 9. And because he is the same, yesterday, today, and forever, let's link the sentence, do not be attracted by strange new ideas. You see how the things are linked? If God's not changing, don't start listening to things that make him change. Let's not be fooled into thinking that what we see today is a new thing, it isn't. We should learn to recognize that the consequence of sin is that mankind has always looked to do his own thing. Verse 10. Your strength comes from God's grace, not from rules about food, which don't help those who follow them. We have an altar from which the priests in the tabernacle have no right to eat. Under the old system, remember we talked about Hebrews, is talking about Jews who are thinking about going back into the Judaic Old Covenant. Under the old system, the high priest brought the blood of animals into the holy place as a sacrifice for sin, and the bodies of the animals were burned outside the camp. So also, Jesus suffered and died outside the city, or outside the city gates, to make his people holy by means of his own blood. You see the conclusions that have been drawn here. Jesus has satisfied the requirements of the old. Put your faith and your trust in the new, in the covering that God has provided. Now, that's a strange bit when we read it. Why is it strange to us? Well, most of us, as we've already established in this room, haven't come under a Judaic system. We've never lived under a system of sacrifice. And here we have God showing the promised better covering. Jesus' sacrifice is better than the old system. So verse 13, so let us go out to him outside the camp and bear the disgrace that he bore. For this world is not our permanent home. Some people are going to try and dismiss dismiss this sentence. For this world is not our permanent home. We are looking forward 
to a home yet to come. And here's the gap that we exist in. This is the gap that we talk about. We look forward and we realize that this is our temporary and fleeting home. A vapor, gone in an instant. Here is where we make our stand with Jesus for the glory to come. And how do we do this? Well, verse 15 tells us. Therefore, because of all of those things, because we've got this hope to look forward to, therefore, let us offer through Jesus a continual sacrifice of praise to God. That's why we worship. Proclaiming our allegiance to his name. And don't forget to do good and share with those in need. These are the sacrifices that please God. Not sacrifices of animals, not old covenant sacrifices. Worship, doing good, and proclaiming allegiance to the name of Jesus. It goes on to say, obey your spiritual leaders. Do what they say. That has been abused. And it needs to be said, that's been abused. Obey your spiritual leaders. And you will know when somebody's telling you something that's right to follow. Okay? Don't lose your common sense on these things. If I'm telling you to do something that does not stack up with this, then you challenge it. Okay? Because God does not change. Obey your spiritual leaders. Do what they say. Their work is to watch over your souls and they are accountable to God. Give them reason to do this with joy and not with sorrow. That would certainly not be for your benefit. And pray for us, says the writer to Hebrews. For our conscience is clear and we want to live honorably in everything we do. And especially pray that I will be able to come back to you soon. Now may the God of peace who brought up the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd, or brought up from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, ratified an eternal covenant with his blood. May he equip you with all you need for doing his will. May he produce in you through the power of Jesus Christ every good thing that is pleasing to him. All glory to him forever and ever. So what the Bible means by fear of the Lord has to be understood in the context of our relationship with him. Okay? I understood fear of my dad out of my relationship with him. I feared him. Why? Because he had the authority to deal with my wrongdoing. But I also knew he loved me. The original Hebrew word means more than just fear. It isn't just a frightening fear that we tend to think of. It means that fear does not spring from a frightful being. God himself is not a frightful being. But fear comes from the knowledge, the clear knowledge we have of that being. So we need to have a full understanding of who God is. And we need to understand that God is judge as well. The more we understand God's unchanging nature, the more we'll see that fear is a rational and honoring aspect of our covenant relationship with him. I loved my dad. Why? Because I know he loved me. He gave me clear rules and he gave me clear guidance to bring out the best in my life. And I miss him. But I also feared him. Not in fright, but in knowledge of what he could rightfully do. It's probably time that we reconnected or reconnected with the true meaning of fear 
as demonstrated in Scripture because it's equally yoked with our obedience. Hebrews 12, I'll finish with this, verses 28 and 29. Since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, that is to come, let us be thankful and please God by worshipping him with holy fear and awe. For our God is a devouring fire. This is scripture. This is New Testament scripture. Not Old Testament scripture. New Testament. And I think we have lost in church, in society, our fear of God. And we shouldn't therefore be surprised that we see everybody acting in chaos because there's no fear of consequence anymore. And church is removing that as well. And we need to put it back. A rightful fear of the Lord who is judge but who loves us as well. And you know, if you're struggling with any of that tension, the story about my dad is the best way I could put it because it was something that I could tangibly hold on to. I knew the wrong I'd done and I also knew that the punishment I received was, was, was held back, okay? Yes, there was punishment for the act, but it was restrained, it was held back. Why? Because his overriding, overriding character was love. But we must fear God because he has the rightful nature and the rightful place. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. We sing about this. If he is those things, then he is also the one who is capable of judging. He is also the one who is capable of measuring those that have lived right or lived wrong. And that's what Bible tells us. So we should have a fear, an honoring fear of God who has loved you and given you everything you need to live a capable and good life that honours him. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and at www.coachhousechurch.org.